Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast on everything going on in the worlds of marketing and communications. My name is Frank Washcook. I'm PR Week's executive editor, and I'm your guest host for today's show. So we have a terrific guest for today's show. That's Garrett Marquis. He's the global head of external communications at BNY Mellon. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Good, Frank. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be with you all. I've been a fan of PR Week for some time now, so glad to be on the program and looking forward to the discussion. And we're glad we can have you on. Um, and we have a great guest co-host for this week, and it's PR Week's newly promoted senior reporter, Alita Stam. Alita, thank you for joining us. Of course. It's always glad to be here. So Garrett, let's let's start off with a little bit about you and, and what you do. And you, you've had an interesting career and I think a, a somewhat unconventional career for somebody who runs uh, communications at a major corporation. Um, but before we get into your history, tell us a little bit about what you're up to now at BNY Mellon uh, and, and what are the main parts of your role? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Uh... For that question, and it is an interesting background, and I appreciate the uh, the question about uh, about BNY Mellon. Um, uh, I also appreciate the word unconventional. That's uh, that is appropriate. So, what do I do today at uh, at BNY Mellon? Really, I lead all global external communications, and you can really bifurcate internal and external uh, in terms of communications. And so, everything outside, facing outside, is what uh, is what I lead, and that includes executive communications that includes social media, uh, our podcast, of course, anything reputation, crisis, proactive, uh, legal, etc. Now, it's also global in nature. Of course, we are one of the largest banks in the world. Uh, and so we have assets, businesses, uh, people uh, 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 in virtually every region. The reality is that we also have businesses, a number of major institutions that are under the BNY umbrella. And so we do a lot of work both uh, from the enterprise level, you know, coordinating the brand uh, effort, but also, frankly, working with, uh, working with the teams that run the various businesses, whether it's wealth management, investment management, and so forth. So it's a, it's a fun job still in the QC on my toes, a lot of different aspects to the job, which is always interesting. And frankly, a lot, a lot of opportunity to learn, which I really, uh, really enjoy and appreciate. What would you say takes up most of your time uh, in your current role? Uh, is there something that you're focused on more than everything else? You know, relationships matter. I've said this almost in every in every job. At least at some point during the during the job I've had, I've realized how important the relationships are. And in the era of this kind of the future of work, uh, the hybrid model that uh, BNY Mellon has embraced, you know, not always being in the office with colleagues is different. And trying to develop and strengthen those relationships, so you have that rapport is really important, especially when you, in communications, right? When we are trying to, to, to share a message and, and really understand uh, what our stakeholders internally uh, are feeling so we can, we can communicate that externally. So I think that, frankly, takes a, a, a lot of effort, maybe more than I even expected coming into this role. We're really prioritizing those relationships, developing good rapport with colleagues, both within the, the MARCOMS, marketing and communications function, but also importantly outside of that function so that we can continue to work cross-functionally in a very matrixed organization to really move the ball forward and hopefully pick up some wins while we're at it. Tell me a little bit about uh, how the hybrid arrangement is working. And and I ask in a, in a way because, um, you know, the finance sector has a bit of a reputation for leading the way back into the office. 
uh, you know, really setting the trend in New York. I'm, I'm saying this, you know, hours after reading tweets about, you know, Mayor Adams kind of cajoling everybody out of you can't work in your pajamas and, and, and all. I'm sure you saw the quote. Um, yeah. But, you know, how, how do you how are you finding that the hybrid arrangement is working out? Yeah, it's a great question, particularly for BNY Mellon. You know, we actually came out, I think, last week. There was a story in the New York Times about our approach to uh, to the hybrid hybrid work, really the future of work as 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 we see it. You know, our executives feel strongly that 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 you know being flexible is key to our approach to the to the workforce. And really, the reality is that in certain regions, in certain countries and markets, that that also might change what flexibility means. But certainly at the baseline level, there's being in the office about three days a week, you know, and then also have that flexibility to talk to your manager and to find out what works best for you, the individual, what works best for your team or your function as well, and making sure that you find something that is appropriate for, for, the, for the organization. And that's the flexibility that is prioritized within BNY Mellon and as we look towards the future of, of work. And it's really kind of multifold in that we see it as not only important for employee retention, making sure that we also have opportunity to develop and keep our employees at the organization, but also attracting top talent externally and seeing as a differentiator, to your point, in the marketplace, certainly within financial services, trying to say, listen, you know, the old is not necessarily the only way, right? We can look to other sectors and say, what are they doing that works well? How, how are their models applicable to our industry and to our business? And how can we can incorporate maybe different aspects to literally redefine the future of work? We hear so much right now just about, and, and this is such an overused term, but the, the war for talent and, and just the, some companies just you know, really having to figure out new ways to be able to retain top people and to retain the people that they want because it's, it's just so, it's such a hot market right now. So you, um, you stepped into this role in September uh, 2021. Well, what was it like? What was it like stepping into a role like this still? in the middle of a pandemic, even, even with everything changing on the ground. What, what was it like to step in in the middle of a pandemic? Well, yeah, that's, to be fair, of course, there, as you noted, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of transitions over the last two years. And uh, uh, joining the firm about six months ago, uh, still, still in pandemic time, um, had its challenges. I go back to the, one of the first questions you asked about developing those relationships, right? It was a priority then, and it continues to be today, and especially with the challenge of Still, this remote work for some people, at the very least, and the hybrid work that we'll soon enter into come uh, come March as a as a business as a firm. The reality is, though, specific to BNY Mellon, and frankly, we're seeing across both financial services services sector and beyond. There's a lot of transformation taking place, and we know in communications, right, the reality is with transformation, there's challenges, a lot of challenges, but in challenges, there's also opportunity. And BNY Mellon leaders have take the took the approach of let's see this as an opportunity not only to change our workforce and look at the future of work, but also how can we reorganize within the Marcoms function? How can we look to tell the story better about being on Mellon? How can we maybe even reimagine what our story is? And so I've had the fortune of coming in uh, uh, six months ago where people already started thinking about that. And part of my joining, frankly, was that transformation happening and trying to find opportunities onward that let us tell our story, not just in New York, not just to the, you know, Wall Street stakeholders, frankly, not just to press, also to clients globally in different markets, whether it's the Middle East, Europe, or Asia. And so it's been fun, frankly, challenging, no doubt. A lot of a lot of different change that some of you can expect, some of you we have not expected. But within a lot of that change, a heck of a lot of opportunity to really make an impact 
in the communication side with marketing and how we tell our story at BNY Mellon. Yeah, I think a lot of successful organizations are, are really, you know, not doing the woe is me thing, really looking forward, seeing what, what they can do and how they can differentiate themselves in the marketplace. You mentioned um, relationships before. We've, we've worked with Alita for, Alita, what's it going on, like 16, 17 months now? I mean, she, I <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she has joked with us, she doesn't know how tall any of us are, which is, <laughs> is a, a remarkable way of, of putting it. So, uh, and kind of incredible. By the way, if anybody asks, I'm about six foot six. So I was going <laughs> to say, I thought you were like five, five. No, oh, it's, well, well, let's give me some credit. Just, you know, <laughs> a little bit. Um, so Garrett, okay. Um, before we get into work at NSC and, and before that, you're, you're currently also an adjunct, I noticed, at, at two universities. And I, I adjuncted for a year or two while I was doing this role. And I, I really loved it when I was doing it, um, just because I, I found that you just learn so much talking to people who are, are, are you know, in, in like that, that young first job out of school, job hunting stage, and it is just, you, you see the world in a whole different way. Um, that was not during the pandemic though. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious as, as, you know, what, what are you hearing back from students? You know, what are they focused on now? You know, how are they seeing the world as they, they kind of get out there for the first job or two? Yeah. Listen, uh, you know, I'll maybe even, I'll maybe rewind a little bit. Uh, why I wanted to be an adjunct, why I wanted to really get back and 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 tell my story, but also help students learn. You know, I, I look back at college and graduate school for me, and there were a few professors who really inspired me. And I, I thought about their their backgrounds over the years, and thought, what is it that made it relatable to me? And I realized everybody's different. Probably the common thread was they had some private sector experience or or a relevant government sector experience where they could tell their story in a practical and applicable way that I could imagine it as a 18 year old or as a 34, 36 year old in graduate school. And so as I kind of progressed in my career, I thought this is an opportunity to hopefully inspire as well, right? Hopefully give back, maybe even share and to your point, learn, right? Learn from the students, understand new perspectives and see frankly how the world is, is being shaped by our, our younger generation. So in, during the pandemic, I think there's been, gosh, you know, I, I think probably there's, there's, there's two responses to that. And the first is, the hybrid model is real, and I don't know that it's going away, even at university, in universities, well, university levels. I know different schools are taking different approaches, even SMU, where uh, I've been an adjunct versus USC, where I've also uh, uh, a, a current adjunct. They're taking different approaches, and uh, I know USC is continuing to do a hybrid model with often some classes online, which is what students presumably are asking for, and they're responding accordingly, whereas SMU will take an approach where they're really trying to drive everybody in person. And that's interesting, right? And we'll see where maybe the cookie crumbles. But I, my sense is that the students are adapting quicker than some of the larger institutions to this hybrid model, which is not only in the workforce, but also in schools. And I think we'll continue to see that, that flexibility uh, uh, in the years ahead at, at universities. Now, to your point, really, the opportunity at these teaching these classes not only hopefully share and, and educate uh, but also learn learn from the new perspectives and see how our, our younger generations are are seeing the world today which during the pandemic there's a lot of opinions a lot of views a lot of perspectives and i think one of the key, key themes that i tried to bring together this is for my communications practice as well is let's continue to have the discussion the most important thing is to keep talking to understand and learn from each other 
hopefully find some common ground, but at the very least, continue to talk. And I enjoyed it. Hopefully, my students did too. And hopefully, uh, I'll continue to have that opportunity to, to give back and to share my perspective to, to students in the years ahead. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just want to go back in the timeline a little bit. You know, when, when you were when you were coming up, you were you worked on the 08 McCain campaign. And there are so many, uh, you know, folks from that campaign who are in, you know, top executive communications roles now. But, you know, uh, from that era of politics in general, where social media was starting to really come to the forefront and starting to become important. Was there any one big thing you took from that campaign or, or you know, even from your time, you know, working in the federal government later, it really influenced you as, as you, you started getting into the private sector? Yeah, it's, that's actually, it, it, there's actually two responses to that. It's a very good question. And I wouldn't necessarily say it was the McCain campaign. However, I'd say broadly, there are a few people that have, that work in corporate uh, communications now, particularly large corporations that came from the uh, uh, government sector, or at least had a stint in government sector, be it on a campaign or uh, in an administration. And there's a few folks whom I really admire. You mentioned uh, some folks in the McCain campaign. That's that's exactly right. But there's also you know, Jeff Morrell was a spokesperson at, for instance, um, at the Pentagon uh, during the, uh, the the Bush and Obama administration. And now he's at Disney. And there's a few other folks, if you, if you look down the line, who have made that transition. And frankly, maybe easier than people expect. And part of that is because they understand the dynamic relationship with communications and how it's evolving quickly from a political lens and into a corporate space. And so as I look towards my future, gosh, 8, 10, 15 years ago, I, I looked towards these people who I admired and who I saw make that transition and who I saw be effective in corporate communications, but coming from a, a political and, and government uh, background. And that's something I really appreciated. And today I still look to those people and not only what they continue to do, but but how they do it, right? And how they communicate and continue to evolve, evolve with the tactics, evolve with the times, evolve with the, the changes in culture. And I've I've learned a lot doing that evolution myself over the last six months at BNY Mellon and, and look forward to to uh, to continue to to do so in the years ahead. Now, I can also touch on one specific item that maybe helped shape my, me as a communicator. Soon after the McCain campaign, maybe a couple years later, I started a consulting firm and it did traditional advocacy communications, mostly in Washington, a little bit in Europe. At one time, we had a client that we're working with who had a separate agency, a digital agency do its social media. And we realized at that time that the social media was not, it didn't have the tone of the principle. And I realized that that's because we were the ones that really had the tone as the communicators. And we eventually took on social media for that one client and incorporated it into our broader communications efforts. That was about the same time we started to see this evolution in social media and it not being just an add-on component of communications, but a critical necessity in any kind of communications effort. And the future, frankly, was on the ground from there. Social media was always a part of every presentation we had, every client approach that uh, th- that we met, and today is a critical part of all communicating. And I think that was maybe a key point to look back on and say, you know, you know, the industry shifted rapidly around that time, and it's continuing to shift every day. And I think the takeaway is, don't get stuck, right? Continue to see the trends, evaluate what's useful, right, and continue to try to adapt accordingly. Yeah, I remember it was just it was like a tidal wave in the late aughts, you know, and, and there was so much there there was debate uh, of of who owns social media, and it's and that's funny, right now now you're like twelve, thirteen years beyond that, and still nobody owns it. Everybody owns a piece of it, and it's, there's not <laughs> one right. there's not one part that really 
you know, got full control of it. And, and you know, in retrospect, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so now's usually the time where I would send it over to a leader for the news of the week. But I want your input on the first topic, uh, given your work history. And I mean, I, of course, the big news item of the week right now is, is the conflict that's going on uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um, and given your background at NSC, what, uh, what do you make of the way that the two sides are positioning themselves just from a communications perspective? I mean, how do you think that the Biden camp is handling it? Uh, how do you think that the, the Putin and his people, I mean, there's been some really dramatic images on TV. And of course, you know, these, these gigantic tables that Putin is using are getting a lot of the attention, but like there, there have been a, a lot of dramatics where he's, you know, he's talking to his intelligence and security and military officials and that, that kind of weird Q and a strict mm-hmm. teacher session yesterday and, and, you know, doing hours long <laughs> right. speeches. How, is this effective? Is it effective in terms of the people he's trying to reach? Is what Biden doing effective? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's really interesting and, and even tragic what's happening in eastern Ukraine right now. Um, you know, it's it, this. Uh, in many ways, we've seen an evolution in uh, how at least our federal government, the U.S. government, adapts to uh, current challenges and the way that it communicates those challenges to the to the public and to stakeholders. And I think that's a key. Is now, who are your stakeholders? In the U.S. government, of course, the public is a major stakeholder, especially with the loud voice it has on social media and through other platforms today. But same with government officials and, frankly, as well, uh, allies and partners abroad. Right? Those are all stakeholders whom the government is communicating to, and, and there's plenty more. Now, you ask yourself who the Russian stakeholders are, and it's probably a little bit different. Right? The main stakeholders are a lot of the folks in the room with the president. Uh, he has absolute authority, uh, uh, and the reality is his audience might be looking for a different tone than than our president. Uh, and I think actually I saw today uh, President uh, um, uh, Putin's poll numbers went up um, 20%, something I'll probably have the number incorrect, but they bumped up just given his actions and what his stakeholders, the public, might be looking for versus, versus President Biden. Now, that brings me to President Biden. I do uh, think that he's done a very good job communicating, especially over the last two weeks, right? We can, we can maybe argue uh, whether the tactics uh, and strategy is right, but let's not let's not do that on this podcast. Let's actually focus on the communications effort. I, the fact that he's trying to be as transparent as possible, right? Which not only is I think beneficial for the U.S. stakeholders, but also our stakeholders abroad, and also President Putin and others. I think is unique. It's unique to U.S. tactics, and it's something where we might be seeing the future of communications and these types of geopolitical challenges where. And you have to get ahead of the conversation by telling people what you might be doing based on what you have seen through either right, intelligence or public uh, public domain information. So I think we're seeing this uh, rapid change again in communications from a government perspective. And my guess is we'll continue to see that, be it you know vis-a-vis Ukraine or or cyber instance in the future, or frankly whether it's uh, you know a natural disaster and the like. Hey. Has there been anything that's really surprised you as as this has started to uh, this situation has evolved? You know, I, I think you know you see the U.S. side kind of roll out all of the the intelligence, not all of it, but but roll out a fair amount of the intelligence they have about what they think Russia is going to do, uh, not in real time, but but as close as they could to it, kind of you know look to deter them that way. Um, you know, other countries are are, are promising. You know, France is playing a role. You know, uh, the UK is playing a role. Anything that's really surprised you so far? 
Yeah, I do think I do think actually again I'll stick to the communications tactics. What has surprised me is as well as referencing the fact that they've declassified and shared so much what seems to be you know, private uh, or classified information with the public and uh, and made it a part of the the president's communications. That's not typically done. And in my experience in government, uh, there was a lot of challenges to do that, to work with the intelligence agencies, to declassify the information, to be able to tell it to the public. The fact that that seems to be uh, more, uh, uh, well, a practice that this administration has been able to deploy is, is, is in many ways good news. I mean, it's a, obviously a sensitive uh, tactic. And there, you know, you need to be, it's a unique challenge that uh, the President, President Biden and his administration face today in Ukraine. But the reality is, this is a good exercise if, if you look at it on very basic levels for the government to practice declassifying information for crises that will continue to come, again, whether it's in Europe, Asia, or elsewhere. And I think that is the biggest surprise for me, but also maybe um, uh, a good thing that, uh, that the, the government is flexing new muscles and learning how to continue to communicate and get ahead of stories or even get ahead of decisions that other countries might be trying to make. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Fair point. Um, Listen, Garrett, thanks for all of that. I'm going to ask Alita to walk us through uh, the big PR and marketing news of the week. So Alita, tell us about the acquisition that WPP made this week. Of course. Uh, So WPP announced its acquisition of Village Marketing this week, which is an influencer marketing agency uh, set to join its uh, Wonderman Thompson North America network. Uh, Village Marketing was founded in 2013 as a woman-led firm and has grown to about 150 employees now. And Vicki Seeger, who was the founder, um, said she sees the acquisition as a way to change the misunderstood and undervalued creator economy. So a call back to how important social media has certainly become in communications. Uh, WPP is focused heavily on M&A as its growth strategy recently. Um, they bought branding and design agency Made Thought and AI technology company Citalia last year as well. A few things I think are interesting about this. And number one, the, the, the founding an influencer agency back in 2013 would have almost made it like a, a forerunner of this space. There's so many influencer agencies now. But I think it's also interesting that this is going to be bolted onto the, uh, the Wonderman Thompson network. Uh, because they're, you know, much like we were talking about social media before, there's there are a lot of questions about who owns the, the influencer space and who does it best. So I guess we'll have our eyes on that to see how it works out. Um, okay, tell us a little bit about what the PRSA had to say about uh, Ron Tarosian and 5WPR after Tarosian had propped up the everything-PR website for a few years. Well, you're going to give away half the news before I get there. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm leading you too far into it. Yes. Um, so PRSA, New York's board of directors, they offered a scathing rebuke of Tarosian's involvement uh, with this site, which was supposed to be an industry news site, but ended up spending more time criticizing uh, 5W PR's rivals and touting his own firm uh, for a competitive advantage. The board called Tarosian's actions, quote, a cowardly and blatant violation of PRSA's code of ethics that are a stain on the profession. And Andrew Graham, who was the immediate past president of PRSA New York, likened the revelation to that point in a horror film where you realize the call is coming from inside the house. It was a great quote to read. Uh, 
<laughs> I have to say, when I saw it in the copy, there's, there's a rare thing when I see a, a quote that, that just makes me burst out laughing like that, but that one did, uh, for sure. Uh, rare to see PRSA or another industry group really come down that hard uh, on an agency or an organization. Um, Garrett, anything you'd like to add on that? Yeah, listen, I, I think it speaks for itself, and certainly the, uh, certainly the response does. Um, you know, like we've been talking, communications matters, and being open and transparent is critical. Uh, and this is probably a case where uh, that backfired. I think the, the question is then, you know, how do you respond to that criticism? What are the next actions that are taken? Uh, that I'm curious to see, but certainly the biggest takeaway, which hasn't changed in the history of uh, communications, is, is be open, be transparent, and be honest. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I agree with you there. Um, Alita, last one. Tell us about uh, a new agency for Ray Jordan uh, and something else new for Firehouse Strategies. Yeah, so Ray Jordan, who's uh, an alum of Moderna and Amgen, has launched his own agency called Putnam Insights. Um, the firm, which Jordan is operating remotely, welcome to 2022, will provide clients with a full consulting services portfolio uh, focused specifically on corporate affairs and corporate communications. So the agency's uh, shtick, so to speak, is uh, packaged service offerings for clients that include things like external input during real-time crises or opportunities or a process for revising a company's messaging strategy and narrative. And um, Putnam Insights is going with this sort of army of subcontractors uh, way of running the business where they'll have a roster of advisors to offer whatever support is needed uh, to their chief communications officers, clients. And tell us a little bit about what Firehouse Strategies is up to. Oh, yes. Uh, Firehouse Strategies is kicking off 2022 with an expansion, opening offices uh, in New York and Orlando, Florida. Uh, so the office openings are meant to be a way to keep up with the political interest in these two states, since uh, Republican politics is growing in importance in Florida and Democrats have always been a solid force in New York. Uh, the move is particularly important when Congress is in a gridlock. Uh, which it seems to be most days. So policy uh, moves to the the state level. Uh, the Orlando office is being run by Todd Reed, uh, who most recently served as Senator Marco Rubio's de deputy chief of staff and state director. And the New York office is run, uh, will be run by senior strategist and MD uh, Dave Vermillion, who previously worked at Kext uh, CNC. That's right. Um yeah, it, you know, it's funny when you talk about Ray Jordan, you look at his 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 resume and it's it's a who's who of the major pharma companies. And he certainly has a unique experience in that case. Uh, Garrett, do you come across uh, firehouse strategies at all? Uh, either they're veterans of the Rubio campaign from 16. Yeah, sure have. I know, I know a couple of the founders uh, quite well uh, and I'm excited for their their expansion. Listen, they kind of take on the political approach to communicate and to advocating for organizations, right? Trying to make that translation for organizations, and they do it effectively. They do it quite well. I'm excited to see uh, what they have, not just in Florida, uh, in New York, but frankly, my my guess is beyond in the, in the years ahead. Good deal. Yeah, we're watching them closely as well. Uh, folks, that's about all the time we have for this week's episode of the PR Week. Let me give you one quick PSA uh, before we sign off, and that's that you can still enter our cover contest uh, that will be on the front cover of our Women of Distinction issue. 
uh, check out our website for all the details on that. And of course, you can still get tickets for the PR Week Awards, which are in person next month, March 16th in New York City. Uh, and check out the PR Week Awards website for more info on that. So, Alita, thank you for guest hosting. Garrett, thank cool. you for our coming on and that's all the time we have for this week's edition of the PR week see you next week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR week to find more episodes visit prweek.com